If you have your Bibles, uh, our scripture passage is Psalm 13. And if you're following along with the program, it's page 6. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. In the month of May, we're dropping into the book of Psalms, and last week we looked primarily at Psalm 2, but we also considered a little bit Psalm 1 and said they were doorways to the Psalter. Psalm 1 said, blessed is the man right, who ultimately finds his delight in the law of the Lord. So Psalm 1 talks about our internal orientation toward God, and Psalm 2 says, blessed is the man who finds refuge in the Son, which is our external orientation to uh, God and ultimately to Christ. And if you have your internal orientation set and your external orientation set right, to, um, to find blessing in those ways, then from the perspective of the Psalter, you're ready to enter the rest of the Psalter. And for the rest of the month, we're going to enter the rest of the Psalter, but we're choosing what I like to call back pocket psalms. And what I mean by that, they're psalms that you want to have in your back pocket. Right? The great psalms to memorize, the representative of a number of different psalms, but they're the kind of psalm that you're going to find yourself in a certain life situation. And when you find yourself in that life situation, that's the one you want to be able to pull out. Right? It's like if you went out to a steak lunch and then went to an interview and you knew you had a massive piece of cow flesh in your teeth. You're like, I sure wish I had floss in my back pocket. And I am remiss not to. Right? You're going to find yourself in certain life situations in which you wish, what was that psalm? What did it say? I wish I, wish I had it. All right. These are the ones, um, some of the ones that I especially think are worth uh, keeping in your back pocket, so to speak. Psalm 13 has been called, among other things, a psalm of disorientation, which frankly I think is a great title for this psalm. It's a psalm in which the psalmist, in this case King David, is extremely disoriented. He feels like God has left the building, that God is being silent and he doesn't necessarily know where to turn in the midst of God's absence. He finds himself in a place of wandering. Now, this is something that is actually common to the Christian experience. Right? You can think of any, almost any great biblical figure, any great theologian, and they will talk about a season in which they feel as though God has left. That God is being silent in a way they don't, you know, sometimes God floods us with his presence and it's pure joy and we, we are overwhelmed by his spirit. And other times we, we may go through weeks or months or even years and say, God just doesn't seem to be present. He doesn't seem to be here for me. He doesn't seem to be carrying through with his promises. And it's in those moments that this, this psalm is the one to uh, appeal to. This is the one to have. You can hear David's angst in the midst of the psalm. Can you not? This fourfold refrain of how long is meant to stress this, um, that David's on the verge of hopelessness. Right? How long, how long, how long, how long? 
And he starts by taking issue with God Himself. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? But realizing that God seems absent, where does He turn? How long must I take counsel in my own soul? Right? If, if, if God, you are depriving me of yourself, at least this is from David's perspective, I don't have your counsel, then I must take counsel in my own soul. And that's, a, that's in some ways a hopeless place to be. David knows it is, and he knows that it will lead to failure, right? because his next line is, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If I only have the capacity to take counsel in my own soul, then I am at a loss. Because I'm only going to survive, I'm only going to thrive if I'm able to take uh, counsel from God. Now we don't know the actual context of this psalm. Remember last week we said that most psalms are generalized. Which means they've taken out the exact historical context so that they can be used in any context. So that any person, whether it's Israel singing together in the temple or us today, who finds themselves in a similar situation, that psalm can be applied to that situation. But given the level of David's angst, we'd probably be on safe ground to say he's either on the run from Saul or he's either on the run from uh, Absalom. One of the lowest points of David's life. And here we find that he, he pens a song that helps him to process what is going on and to, to think about how to operate in the midst of God's silence. Have you found yourself in this place? Do you know what it is to feel like God is being silent and is not present? When you find yourself in that place, what do you do? What's the appropriate way to move forward in what feels like a desert? Well, this is what we're looking for today and learning from Psalm 13, which is the purpose that God has even in His silence. And so to tackle the psalm, I want to consider three things, three aspects. Number one is misunderstanding the silence of God. Number two is the grace of God's silence. And number three is growing in silence. So simple recap, misunderstanding, grace, and growing, all related to God's silence. So how are we prone to misunderstand God's silence. It feels a bit, when God is silent, like we are lost. Calvin has a, it puts it beautifully when he reflects on the psalm. He says, The Lord indeed promises to give to believers the spirit of counsels, but He does not always supply, supply this at the very first moment of need. But as if in a, a winding maze... He allows them to run in circles for a time or to hesitate entangled among thorns. What's Calvin saying? He's saying, yes, God does promise to give you counsel, but not necessarily at the moment of your need. Because sometimes God deems it fit that you should run around in a maze or feel like you're stuck in a thicket. Which is a pretty good description of how it feels when God is silent. So, when we're in that thicket, when we're in that maze, how do we respond to God? How do we move forward in a healthy way? How do we understand God's purpose in the midst of that silence? Well, I think we would admit that there's lots of different possible responses. And again, we're focusing on the responses that reveal that we misunderstand God's purposes in His silence. 
how do we see ourselves moving in the wrong direction? Well, sometimes we, some people may say that God simply prefers, apparently, not to associate with me. If God isn't showing up and dialoguing with me or meeting me in my need, then apparently his care and compassion for me isn't that great, or he's just disappointed with me or ashamed with me, and we have the tendency to pull away. In fact, this can even go in the direction of moving toward, not necessarily arriving at, but moving toward that place in which we, we don't necessarily say out loud, but we start to live essentially as God doesn't exist, right? where there's little reference point to God being any significant part of our life or a person who actually informs where we are. Uh, this comes in the pain of God's silence. Now, you might, you might think about this pain or, or recognize this pain if you think about a breakup. You know, think about a boy and a girl. They're dating. They have a strong relationship. Maybe there's talk of marriage. The girl decides that she's done and breaks up with the boy. And the boy is at home, curled up in a fetal position, crying and saying, I don't understand. I thought we had a good relationship. I thought you cared and you've done this to me. And rather, he doesn't like the pain that he feels. He's hurt, and so what does he do? He doesn't sit in the pain. He starts to say things like, well, she wasn't a good girlfriend anyway. I, I didn't really want to spend life with her. And there are lots of other options. Right? You see what, what this, in this example, what the heart does. It pivots away from the pain and moves towards places that make us feel strong or give us opportunity to exert contempt. And when we find ourselves hurt by God's silence because it feels like he doesn't care because he doesn't feel present, right? we find ourselves saying, how long? How long? Well, the great temptation in the how long is to simply start to express an ambivalence toward God. Now, ambivalence is one of the words that is most frequently used incorrectly in the English language. Right? Most people, well, not most, Let's not speak in exaggeration. Sometimes you hear someone use the word ambivalence as if, I don't really care. Right? This is an example of how it would be used incorrectly. You say, do you want to go to Chick-fil-A or to Torchy's today? And the person says, ah, they're the same to me. I'm ambivalent. Right? That's an incorrect usage because the person's saying, I really can't muster up any reason to care which place we go. Ambivalence really means that you're so conflicted in feelings that you cannot come to a moment of decision. So if someone said to you, hey, do you want to go to Chick-fil-A or Torchy's today for lunch? And you said, oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. On the one hand, I would desperately want the Cobb salad. But on the other hand, I can't stop thinking about the trailer park taco at Torchy's, which is the best one on the menu, if you were wondering. And say, I'm so torn and conflicted internally, I can't make a decision, you decide. That's the proper use of the word ambivalence. And so when we talk about ambivalence toward God, what we're talking about is being so conflicted. On the one hand, I know I'm supposed to believe that God loves me, but that's certainly not what I feel at this moment. And on the other hand, I feel like it would just be easier to pull away from Him. Simply to withdraw. I'm going to Take a few steps back, and that way I won't be so hurt. I won't experience so much pain. And of course, I believe that he exists, and when he wants my attention, he'll show back up. 
we move into this place which is an incredibly dangerous place. And I think it's one of the places that has characterized the American scene, the American church for the last 50 years. Friends, we, would, we couldn't possibly count the number of people who have left the church, uh, the American church, over the last 50 years. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that uh, we've, we've become a people who fail to remember to practice what it means to be faithful in God's silence. And so we pull away, we enter the ambivalence, this ambivalence toward God, and once you've lived for a little while in ambivalence toward God, you're just moving farther and farther away from Him, and it's harder and harder to come back. I think we've seen this play out right, in the American church as people have moved away. In fact, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who is a, a famous philosopher, 75 years ago saw this beginning to happen. He saw that people uh, started, they went through World War I right, and said, How, where is God? In World War II, if God was good and loving, he wouldn't let this happen. And people moved away from him right, in the midst of his silence and Sartre would write um, that this notion, entering into this ambivalence toward God, he called the condemnation of freedom. And you hear the tension in the term? Right? How can freedom be a condemnation? Condemnation is a punishment or a sentencing. But uh, Sartre was saying that freedom, in this sense, feels like a condemnation to people because each human is, quote, forlorn. Because neither within him nor without does he find anything to cling to? Can you think of a better uh, soundbite to capture the state of American culture and the malaise in which we live than the fact that we are forlorn because neither within him nor without does he find anything to cling to? It's the, it's the status of moving into ambivalence toward God. Which is how we misunderstand God's silence when we allow ourselves to drift in that direction. So how do we better understand God's silence. In fact, how do we understand that there is grace in God's silence? That there's opportunity and God may be doing things beyond our wildest imaginings in the midst of that silence? Well, let's consider that grace. Could there be divine purpose in silence? Even though that hurts. Well, let's start with a simple analogy. Imagine that you have a... Uh, a child who has grown and is now a senior and is headed to college. And you've walked with that child through preparing for college, for considering different options. You've gone, been on tours and you've talked about what's important in a school and you've talked about uh, what would be a good fit. And the child gets into several schools and narrows it down to, let's say, three schools then the child is overwhelmed. In tears and frustration, the child says, listen, I, I got it down to three, but I'm so afraid of making the wrong choice. I need you, mom and dad, to make this decision for me. Now, what's the loving thing for the parent to do? I'm so glad you asked. We know exactly what you should do. No, that's not the loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to be silent. Is to say, actually, child that we love dearly, you need to walk through this decision. You need to take ownership of this decision. And you need to realize that you don't need to be undone or overwhelmed by this decision. And if we entered in now, 
even though we know exactly where you should go. Right? We would ruin that for you. And so instead, we're going to be silent. And we're going to allow for you to mature and to grow and to, to sink some deeper roots in terms of being a person. So we can see that from a certain vantage point on a human level. We can see it too if we think about the story of Owen. Right? Owen grows and where we left off, you know, they're developing all kinds of therapies and communicating with him and developing him through these Disney phrases. But what would happen for Owen if his dad said, this is good, we're just going to stop with the Disney phrases and that's where he'll be. Eventually there had to be a place where when Owen utters the Disney phrase, Dad does not utter the correct phrase back. So that Owen could be challenged to move into communicating outside of the Disney phrases through which he's learned language. And in that place, the loving thing to do is for Owen's dad to be silent so that Owen grows in his ability to communicate. Okay. Now how about a biblical example? If you track with me, you should kind of have your mind blown a little bit in terms of what God can accomplish through the silence. Let's think about justice in the Old Testament. There's individual justice and there's national justice. So let's think about individual justice for a minute. What was individual justice in the law? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? If you, if you knock me or kill my animal, well, I get to knock you or kill your animal. What about national justice? Well, God said, listen, Israel, if as a people you're obedient, then you'll be rewarded. But if you're disobedient, then you'll be cursed. Okay, so you need to hold this tension. Individual justice, you get exactly what you deserve. National justice, you get what you deserve as a people. What happens when those two forms or needs of justice uh, run into each other? Like in the exile. When God comes and kicks Israel out of the land for their disobedience. Now we know, even from Scripture, that there were plenty of righteous people in Israel. But the righteous are kicked out with the unrighteous. Well, wait a minute. Now the righteous are not getting what they deserve. They're being punished alongside the unrighteous because of the national sense of justice. But how is that just? Well, thankfully, God shows up and explains exactly what he's doing in the midst of this. No, he doesn't. Instead, God's silent, at least in terms of explaining exactly what's going on. And you see the prophets begin to wrestle with how can this be? How can the righteous suffer with the unrighteous? And they begin to formulate a new theology that had been hinted at and foreshadowed in the law and sacrificial system, but they begin to talk about vicarious suffering, in which if righteous people suffer on behalf of unrighteous people, then the sins of the unrighteous people are covered up, are atoned for. And it's this theology that begins to evolve and ultimately culminates in places like the, the suffering servant songs of Isaiah, in which we don't know who, but it pictures a person who's going to come and suffer on behalf of the people. And because of his suffering, his suffering will be vicarious and it will cover up the sins of the people. By his stripes you will be healed. And this continues to ferment not only to the end of the uh, Old Testament, but through the intertestamental period, you know, the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, where God is utterly silent, but this is in the silence, the people are continuing to wrestle with this and write about it and think about it. And ultimately, it sets the stage for Jesus. 
who comes and can be understood right, as the suffering servant. Uh, Jesus draws upon the Isaiah songs to explain his own role, his own messianic role. And as a result of that entire process, an ethic entirely changes. Right? When your child comes to you and says, oh, you know, I, um, Susie pulled my hair. Right? What do you say? Well, you listen to me. You go right back and you yank out the equal amount of hair from that person because it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No. Right? What do we, now we live in an ethic where if someone hits you on one cheek, you turn the other. If you're asked to go one mile, you go two. Right? Rather than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we're commanded to love our enemies. Why? How did we get there? Well, God's leading us redemptively the entire time. But part of that is a massive wrestling in the midst of God's silence. And what I mean by his silence is his not explaining exactly what's going on, but allowing his people to wrestle with what they're experiencing in light of what they know about him and the spirit working in the midst of that wrestling so that the people of God are made new. They're prepared for the arrival of Christ. They move into a new ethic. And all because they were called into that wrestling in the midst of that silence. Do you see the grace that exists in the silence of God? Do you see the opportunity for growth? We would be remiss, of course, not to mention, too, that when we look at our Savior, right, who asked for the cup of God's wrath to pass from Him, and God says no, and then on the cross, what does He experience? The most deafening silence from God in the history of the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to really turn us upside down, the author of Hebrews has the most interesting turn of phrase. He says that the Son of God, Jesus, learned obedience through suffering. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what's all entailed in that turn of phrase. And people have argued over it thousands of years, right? You get into very sticky water pretty quickly if you start talking about what Jesus did and did not learn as the second person of the Trinity. But I'm just quoting Hebrews to you. That in some capacity... Jesus is formed by his suffering, which includes the silence of God. So how are you going to be formed? Would we expect anything other than to learn obedience through suffering, of which part is the silence of God? That we might indeed be made like Christ. And this is the grace of his silence. All right. All well and good. How in the world do we walk out of here today and put any of this into practice? What does it mean to really sit in the silence of God in a way that's healthy and in a way that allows our roots to go deeper and for us to grow? Well, this is what it means to grow in God's silence. Very quickly, a few practical tips. First, look at verses 3 and 4, or at least verse 3. What does David do? He says, how long, how long, how long, how long? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He takes his complaint, he takes his anguish directly to God, and he says, answer me. Pay attention to me and respond to me. In other words, David doesn't go in a different direction. He doesn't pull away from God and find some kind of escape or some, something to cover up his pain. He takes his pain to God and says, listen, pay attention and answer me. And when you are sitting in the silence of God, you must over and over and over again 
run to God and say, consider, consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. I'm calling you to be faithful to your covenant promises. And of course, if you want tutelage in that, you can turn to the book of Job any day. Secondly, look at verses 5 and 6. Without warning, without warrant. It's so abrupt. You've got complaint. You've got anguish. You've got hopelessness. You get to verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. What David's doing, obviously we know that David doesn't feel this full out. Right? Given everything that just came before. What he's doing is he's needing his own heart. The New Testament tells us that Jesus takes our hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. And it's because the yeast of his gospel works into our hearts and starts to transform them. But what happens when you leave a lump of dough out just sitting? It gets really crusty and dried out on the outside. That's what happens to our hearts. Unless we're continually needing them through praise and worship. David knows he's in a hard place, but he says, I'm going to... I'm going to work this into my heart. I'm going to continue to praise. I'm going to continue to worship. I'm going to remember that God has been faithful in the past, and I believe, I confess, that He will be faithful in the future. Number three, to survive the silence of God, it takes a village. And this is what I mean by that. What if God responded to you every time you approached Him? In every situation, you said, God, I'm frustrated. How long, how long? And God showed up like a genie and said, oh, sorry to delay. Here, your wish is granted. Your situation is remedied. Everything is fixed. I'll tell you one outcome of that would be that you would have utterly no need for the person on your right and your left. The church would die overnight because there's no need for a community if God immediately met every need that you had. And yet that's not the vision that God has for his people that we are called to be the body of Christ, together laboring and together ministering to one another, and it's in God's silence that that has rich opportunity. Number four, to hear God in the silence requires that you be quiet. It's hard to hear something when it's noisy. Friends, you live in the noisiest period in the history of the world. There is no short of a cacophony of voices that are breaking in on you all the time from screens to phones to work to children's activities. If you've been alive long enough, you know that between uh, comparing the 1970s to right now, children are involved in 1,800 more activities on an annual basis than they were in the 70s. And that's just an example of the busyness of life and the cacophony of voices that's crashing over us all the time. So my question to you is, when are you quiet? You say, God, God seems silent. Are you listening? Do you have a space in which you're listening? And you, th- you, know, you might say, yes, I'm quiet every night. Finally get the beds down at nine and have a glass of wine and, and sit for a moment and then I turn on Netflix. That's not what I'm talking about. Right? I'm talking about a moment where you are awake and energized and present and not entirely spent in which you intently right, open the scriptures and listen for God to speak. The beauty of what David reminds us here, right? Even in verse 5, he says, I've trusted in your love, and I know that my heart will rejoice in your salvation. In other words, God, you've been faithful in the past, and I know you will be faithful in the future. But the real beauty of this psalm, the reason that you should have it in your back pocket, 
is that it reminds us that even in the middle, even in the silence, God has been just as faithful. Let's pray. Father, we, we today thank you for your silence. It's something that is uncomfortable and hard to endure. It's something that can hurt and in which sometimes we move away. But we ask that you would give us faith and courage to remember that you have been faithful in the past and that our salvation is assured in you in the future. But even now you are doing things that very rarely can be seen in the moment. That your silence is opportunity for growth and development and maturing and, and becoming deep in ways that we don't understand. So we pray that you would help us to be faithful in the midst of silence and indeed to grow, to draw near you, to constantly come to you with our complaint, to ask you to answer us, and all the while to be finding ourselves in praise and worship. We ask it in Christ's name.